all tonight. So first of all, will you please give a very warm welcome to Claire Paul.
comes from the letters he dutifully sent to his family each day. It was this sense of duty mixed, of course, with a desire for adventure that led Albert to leave behind his dream job as an electrical engineer and volunteer to fight for king and country. Unlike many of his fellow pilots, allied and German, Albert didn't fly for pleasure. He flew solely to bring down enemy aircraft. Yet, despite his total dedication to the job in hand, he bore no hatred towards his opponents. Writing to his parents, I only scrap because it is my duty. Nothing makes me feel more rotten than to see them go down. But you see, it is either them or me, so I must do my duty. This sentiment grew towards the end of Albert's life as the war in the air became ever more relentless, and Albert was shooting down increasing numbers of enemy aircraft, whilst narrowly escaping death himself. He wrote to his girlfriend, Flora Young, Won't it be nice when all this beastly killing is over and we can just enjoy ourselves and not hurt anyone? I hate this game, but it is the only thing that one must do just now. And on the same day, he wrote to his father, I'm indeed looked after by God, but, oh, I do get tired of always living to kill, and I'm really beginning to feel like a murderer. <coughs> Albert was very close to his family, who he called my people. <coughs> Born on August the 14th, 1896, in Lenton Boulevard, Nottingham, he was the middle child of Alderman Albert Hall, a successful businessman, later Lord Mayor of Nottingham, and his wife, Harriet Hall. Albert had an older sister, Lois, and his <coughs> younger brother, Cyril, who followed him into the Royal Flying Corps. They had a loving, happy, and carefree childhood, and were indulged by their parents. Oh, sorry. The many biographies of Albert Ball usually paint him as a loner, but we should resist such a simplistic portrayal. In his style of combat, he was indeed a lone wolf, stalking his prey in the clouds. It's also true that he often chose to unwind through solitary pursuits, <coughs> but he wasn't unsociable. While those who didn't know him so well tended to see him as more isolated, a contemporary on 60 Squadron spoke of how he was nicknamed the Lonely Testicle. A pilot who served with him in 8 Squadron said, he was supposed to be a loner, but we found him to be friendly. And Richard Longfield, his commanding officer in 56 Squadron, who knew him well, described him as modest and unassuming, full of fun, and undeniably popular with his fellow officers and men. Much has been made of Albert's relationship with Flora Young. They met by chance in March 1917, while Albert was a flight commander with a newly formed 56 Squadron <coughs> at London Colney near St Albans. And, as the story goes, it was love at first sight. Flora was 18 at the time, and on the day they met, she was wearing a pale lemon dress, with her long hair put up in heavy rolled plaits to frame her face under a large yellow hat. Within five minutes of meeting, Albert asked her if she'd like to take a flip in his aeroplane. Flora said she would. 
So after borrowing a leather flying coat, off she went into the air, to the horror of her mother, who was looking on. <coughs> Later that night, Albert wrote to her, just cannot sleep without first sending you a line to thank you for the topping day. I am simply full of joy to have met you. After that, they saw each other whenever they could. And before Albert left for France, he gave her a gold identifi identification disc. And she gave him a little book of Robert Louis Stevenson's prayers. It is said they were informally engaged to be married. Now, at this point, you need to know that Albert was very much a ladies' man. Although quiet and modest, there were numerous girls he was stringing along, and he had quite a number of gold identification papers. <laughs> However, he did write to Flora every day after returning to France and told her that his aim in life was to win the Victoria Cross for her sake. She replied that she cared nothing for that and that she just wanted him back safely. They were never to see each other again. Even as a child, Albert was interested in technology. When the family moved to Sedgley House in the Park District of Nottingham, Albert was given a wooden shed in the garden where he spent much of his time fixing old gas engines and electrical equipment. From the age of nine, he began collecting pistols and was allowed to fire them in the garden, soon becoming a crack shot. He attended a number of schools before transferring to Trent College at the age of 14. Although not particularly academic, he found a variety of practical subjects he enjoyed, technical drawing, carpentry, photography, gardening, and he also learned to play the violin. In 1912, in his final year at Trent, 16-year-old Albert was restless and keen to get on with the next phase of his life. Like his father before him, he was tremendously ambitious and already knew exactly what he wanted to do, as is clear from this letter home. I should like to be placed in a large electric engineering factory where they make all kinds of machinery from the dynamo to the power to drive it. I should like to have a chance to work my way up from the bottom and try to get to the top. I think that the place for me is where there's plenty of work and bustle, so that I can keep my mind to it and not be troubling with other things. He was 16 when he wrote that. His parents persuaded him to remain at Trent for another year, with a course of engineering specially arranged for him. Age 17, he left school to set up in business as an electrical engineer. Albert's engineering skills were to stand him in good stead as a pilot, enabling him to modify and thereby improve the capabilities of a number of the aircraft he flew at the front. On more than one occasion, he was also able to save his own skin by coaxing a failing engine to fly him safely back to base. Albert indulged his love of machinery in his off-duty hours as well, and I'm indebted to Mr. Chris Golding, one of our audience members tonight. Chris, could you wave at me? Are you here? Yeah. Oh, hi. Thank you, Chris, for suggesting I make mention of Albert's beloved Morgan. Albert would have felt right home here at Brooklands. Uh, he was passionate about motor cars, 
And while on leave in the spring of 1917, he purchased a specially commissioned Morgan three-wheeler. He was delighted with it and described it as the closest thing to flying without leaving the ground. And when Morgan produced their first sports model, they named it Avra in his honor. Albert enlisted as a private in the Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire Regiment, the Sherwood Foresters, also colloquially known as the Robin Hood Rifles, and was soon commissioned as a lieutenant. But keen to see action and thinking that cyclist battalions might be sent out before line regiments, he transferred to the North Midland Cyclist Corps, where he trained troops for the front, but was still no closer to getting there himself. Can anyone spot him? If I can use this pointer. Um, um, knowing that there had been dreadful casualties at the front didn't put him off at all. And on the 24th of February 1915, he wrote to his parents, I have just sent five boys to France, and I hear they will be in the firing line on Monday. It is just my luck to be unable to go. In June 1915, Albert attended a flying display at Hendon Aerodrome and was so impressed, he decided to learn to fly. He rose at 3 a.m. each morning to make a 60-mile return journey by motorcycle from Luton to the Ruffy Bowman School at Hendon for private flying lessons, returning to Luton in time for the first parade of the day at 6.45. Think of that next time, you don't want to listen to the alarm when it goes off. <laughs> Flying training in the early years of aviation was a bit like Russian roulette. As is only too clear from Albert's somewhat callous letters home. Yesterday, a ripping boy had a smash. And when we got up to him, he was nearly dead. He had got a two-inch piece of wood right through his head and died this morning. If you would like a flight, I should be pleased to take it any time you wish. <laughs> By now, Albert had decided to join the Royal Flying Corps, the precursor to the Royal Air Force, founded on the 1st of April 1918. Explaining his decision, he wrote home to his parents. They're very short of pilots, and I may do a little good. It was at this time that he began writing home to ask for cake, saying to his mother, I so love to have a good piece of cake to go flying with in the morning, and if made by you, it would be better still. And by way of insurance, he also wrote to his sister, I was so pleased to get your ripping cake, but I've nearly finished it. I love to take a huge piece with me when I fly. Albert's demands for cake continued even featuring in his final letter home. On the 15th of October 1915, he qualified as a pilot, receiving Royal Aero Club certificate 1,898, and immediately requested a transfer to the Royal Flying Corps. He was sent to 9 Squadron RMC in Norfolk, where he was offered the chance to go to France within the next few weeks as an observer. But having paid good money to learn to fly, Albert decided to stay where he was until he could serve as a pilot. As this country's leading air fighter at the time of his death, one might imagine that Albert Ball was a natural aviator, 
But this is not the case. He got where he did through sheer hard work. Indeed, at one point during training, he was flying on Morris Farm in Shorthorn and made a bad landing, damaging the machine. His instructor angrily told him to get out and enlist in a flying school for girls because he would never let him fly again. Albert stood his ground, replying that he'd only had 15 minutes instruction on the Shorthorn and that if he wasn't allowed to fly the aeroplane, he'd go back to the cyclist course. The instructor quickly changed his mind and ordered another Shorthorn. Albert then went up and made five good landings in succession. In December 1915, he was transferred to the Central Flying School at Uphaven, where he had his worst crash. Coming into land one day, the wind caught his aircraft, forcing it to the ground and destroyed it. Fortunately, although a little stunned, Albert was okay and went on to gain his pilot's wings in January 1916. On the 17th of February, he crossed the channel to join 13 Squadron at Mario in France. His job was to fly a two-seater Royal Aircraft Factory BE-2C, carrying out photographic reconnaissance, artillery spotting and bombing operations. Albert's arrival in France came at a critical time for the RFC as it coincided with the tail end of the so-called Fokker scourge. This was a period from around July 1915 to early 1916 when the German Army Air Service enjoyed superiority over the French and British squadrons, thanks to its use of Fokker Eindecker monoplane fighters. Although not a particularly fast or sturdy aeroplane, the Fokker Eindecker was equipped with a synchronization gear, which enabled its machine gun to fire through the arc of its propeller without the bullets striking the blades. The German pilots could now aim their guns by simply pointing their aircraft at the target. This gave them a significant advantage and made it increasingly difficult for the Allied squadrons to mount the essential reconnaissance operations required by their troops on the ground. The two-seater BE-2C that Albert was flying on his arrival in France was slow and stable. In his first few months at the front, he survived being shot down by anti-aircraft fire and had his first taste of air combat. He enjoyed being kept busy, giving his all to everything he did, but the work took a toll on his nerves. Recognising this, he wrote to his father, I like this job, but nerves do not last long and you soon want to rest. He also tried to discourage his younger brother Cyril from following him into the RFC. Albert spent 11 weeks with 13th Squadron, flying missions nearly every day. Despite the effect on his nerves, he demonstrated an aggressive spirit in the air, even though his B-2C was completely unsuited to air fighting. 
He much preferred flying one of the squadron's single-seat Bristol scouts, whose purpose was to protect the two-seaters. On the 7th of May 1916, he was posted to 11th Squadron to begin his career as a fighter pilot. He had exactly one more year to live. During his time with 11th Squadron, Albert flew Bristol scouts in Newport 16s and 17s, claiming victories on all three. The Newport 17, a French aircraft, offered great maneuverability and could climb very fast. It was to remain Albert's aircraft of choice. And this is his Newport 17, by the way. That's why I'm afraid the slide's a little blurry, but I thought you'd like to see it. He was assigned a billet in a nearby village, but unhappy with the hygiene levels, he chose to live in a tent on the aerodrome. When he found the tent damp, he built himself a wooden hut. I said he built himself a wooden hut. And cultivated a small flower and vegetable garden in which to unwind, writing home to ask for seeds and specifying the seeds that he wanted. He wrote to his father about the garden, in which I hope to spend my spare time in the evenings. He added, my work is rather a nerve pull, so I think it is best for me to forget all about it after it's over. His fellow pilot, Cecil Lewis, also recalled how, in the evening, Albert would set off a red magnesium flare and walk around its glow in his pyjamas, playing his violin. Living on the airfield meant that he was ready at all times to take off in pursuit of enemy aircraft. Often he jumped straight up from his garden into his aeroplane, or leapt out of bed pulling his flying boots and coat on over his pyjamas. And despite the chill winds up above, he flew without goggles or helmet. <coughs> Albert's first victory came on the 16th of May, when piloting a Bristol scout, he drove down a reconnaissance aircraft. But his delight in this victory was tempered by events later in the day, as one of his close friends was shot down and killed by a Fokker Eindecker. On the 29th of May, Albert claimed two more victories, followed by another on the 1st of June. By now, he was desperate for some leave and was counting down the days, but his leave was postponed as he couldn't be spared. Finally, on the 10th of June, he left France for a well-deserved break returning to the front two weeks later, during the lead-up to the Battle of the Somme. On the 25th of June, he claimed his next victory and became an ace by destroying an observation balloon with phosphor bombs. For this and other victories, he was later awarded the Military Cross. I should add that the word ace was a French invention and seldom if ever used by the RFC during the war. Nowadays, of course, it can be used to describe a successful fighter pilot or indeed anyone else who's really good at their job. During the Battle of the Somme, Albert was on standby for 19 hours a day. And on one day alone, he made 12 separate sorties. On the 2nd of July, he achieved two victories in one sortie, accounting for a Roland C2 and an Aviatic. When shooting down the Aviatic in the heat of the moment, Albert discovered what was to become his signature method of attack, diving beneath an enemy aircraft and firing up into its fuselage at point-blank range, using the Lewis gun fixed to his top wing. Very few pilots had the skill and the courage to fight like this, 
Albert risked the enemy aircraft falling on top of him. And it's not surprising his chosen method of attack put a strain on his already delicate nerves. This, and his willingness to take on large numbers of enemy aircraft, single-handed. Albert relied on the fact that as he approached them, the enemy aircraft would scatter, allowing him to deal with them individually. In the early weeks of July, eight of Albert's fellow pilots were killed. It was all too much for him, and on the 16th of July, having flown the whole day, he went to his commanding officer and requested a few days' rest. Albert's CO, Major Hubbard, known to his men as Mother, passed Albert's request to Brigadier General Higgins, known as All Bum and Eyeglass, with the result that rather than getting a few days' break from flying, Albert was posted to 8th Squadron to again fly BE-2s on general reconnaissance work. This may have been a punishment for his outspoken reaction to having his request for leave turned down. Although quiet and polite by nature, Albert was always prepared to speak his mind to his superiors. It was said, for example, that after taking a B-12 on a test flight, he was asked by Major General Trenchard, commander of the RMC in France, what he thought of it, and replied, it's a bloody awful machine. <laughs> Nothing if not honest. Albert was far from happy about the move to 8th Squadron and said as much to his father in a letter. Nevertheless, he once again set about proving himself. In addition to his ordinary squadron flying, he volunteered for any difficult or dangerous missions, including landing a spy behind enemy lines. Unfortunately, the spy in question, a Monsieur Victor, pointed out that the Germans were aware of their presence and refused to leave the aircraft. Although Albert took off and landed on three further occasions, Monsieur Victor was adamant. He wouldn't budge, and a disgruntled Albert was forced to fly him back to base. Despite the failure of the mission, Brigadier General Higgins was now full of praise for Albert, and a few weeks later, on the 14th of August, Albert's 20th birthday, he was allowed to return to 11th Squadron, where he found a brand new Newport 16 waiting for him and was promoted to temporary captain. Albert was back in his element, and five victories followed in quick succession. On the 23rd of August, he was posted to 60 Squadron, where he was granted the liberty of fighting as he saw fit. He was at the height of his powers, and the bright red spinner he now attached to his propeller made him instantly identifiable helping to confirm his victories, which amounted to a further 20 enemy aircraft in only 36 days. Recognition came on the 1st of September in the form of a Distinguished Service Order. Two bars to his DSO were to follow, making him the first triple winner of this prestigious award. However, his all-or-nothing style of fighting, though very brave, was inherently risky and he regularly returned with his aircraft shot off. Recognising that the stress of combat was causing him to take unnecessary risks, Albert requested and was granted leave. Six months in England followed, including a spell as an instructor. Returning to Nottingham, he found himself a celebrity and was mobbed on the streets by well-wishers. Such attention was highly unusual and Albert found it embarrassing. While individual fighter pilots in other countries were actively promoted for propaganda purposes or were the subjects of public adulation, 
British policy was to avoid publicizing the success of the individual at the expense of the team. Only a handful of pilots, such as William Leake Robinson, who in September 1916 became the first man to destroy a German airship over Britain, were individually known to the public at this time. It should be remembered that the primary role of the RFC throughout the First World War was to con conduct reconnaissance and artillery spotting operations for the benefit of the troops on the ground. Our fighter pilots were there to protect these reconnaissance aircraft and neutralize those of the enemy. Of course, the Germans had the same idea, and that's how fighter versus fighter combat evolved. Albert returned to France as a flight commander with 56 Squadron on the 7th of April 1917. The squadron's hand-picked pilots were the first to fly the Royal Aircraft Factory's SE-5. And this is a SE-5 with Albert in the SE-5 at London Colney before he left France. But Albert disliked the new fighter, calling it a dud and made a number of modifications, including removing its unnecessarily large windscreen. He never warmed to the aircraft, and although he flew it on squadron duty because he had to, he was permitted a personal Newport 17 for his lone hunting missions. Of course, we know that when fitted with either a Hispano Suiza or Wolseley Viper 200 horsepower engine, the SE-5 redesignated SE-5A became an excellent aircraft. It was strong and stable, and was a good gun platform with a maximum speed of 134 miles per hour, which was very fast for its time. Just as Albert had made his debut on the Western Front at the time of the Fokker Skirmish, his finale occurred during another period of German air superiority, so emphatic it came to be known as Bloody April. Although the RFC had a greater number of aircraft than the German air service, its machines, including Albert's beloved Newport 17, were outclassed by the Germans' new single-seat, twin-gunned Albatross fighters. It's an Albatross III. And these aircraft were flown by well-trained pilots led by highly experienced veterans, such as Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron. They operated in jasters or hunting squadrons, flying in tight formation. In this, the RFC's worst month of the war, no fewer than 245 aircraft and 319 British aircrew were lost. 56 of these aircraft were actually lost in accidents, but it was still a testing time. The Germans, in comparison, lost only 66 aircraft from all causes and 119 men. Despite the casualties, the RFC continued to fly its crucial reconnaissance, artillery spotting, and tactical bombing missions in support of the army. That Albert destroyed five enemy aircraft during bloody April and accounted for a further 21 in May shows just how good he was. However, his heroic all-or-nothing style of fighting had had its day. The tempo of the air war had quickened. There were many more aircraft in the sky, and the odds were simply against him. In the last few days of his life, he was taking increasing risks and was at breaking point. On the evening of the 7th of May, flying conditions were extremely bad, with thick layers of cumulus clouds from 2,000 to 10,000 feet. But orders had come through to fly the evening patrol. So Albert took off with 10 pilots from his squadron. 
Despite the weather conditions, the sky was busy with enemy aircraft, and Albert and his fellow SE-5 pilots were soon involved in fierce fighting, becoming separated from one another by cloud. Billy Crow, a fellow flight commander on 56 Squadron, <coughs> saw Albert attacking an Albatross D3, almost certainly flown by Lothar von Richthofen, the younger brother of Manfred, the Red Baron. Billy Crow saw the two aircraft disappearing into a dark thundercloud. The next people to see Albert's SE-5 were three German officers on the ground, who saw it emerge upside down from the bottom of the cloud, with its engine stopped and its propellers stationary, leaving a trail of black smoke caused by oil leaking into the cylinders. The Germans rushed to the crash site to find Albert dead on the ground, alongside the wreckage of his aeroplane. As there were no bullet wounds on Albert's body, the Germans came to the conclusion that he had died as a result of injuries sustained in the crash. Lothar von Richthofen later claimed to have shot Albert down, but his claim was for a sock with triplane. Furthermore, Albert's aircraft showed no signs of damage consistent with aerial combat or anti-aircraft fire. Although the cause of the crash is unclear, it's still debated today, it seems probable that Albert became disorientated in the thick cloud and that his SE-5 inverted, causing the engine to die and making a crash inevitable. Albert was buried in the German military cemetery at Anunia, where he lies to this day. The only, only um, British pilot currently to, to rest there. Following his death, Major General Sir Hugh Trenchard said, his loss to the Flying Corps was the greatest loss it could sustain at that time. While perhaps the best praise came from Manfred von Richthofen, who described him as by far the best English flying man. Albert was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross, and his death was reported throughout the world. He was by then the British Empire's leading flying ace. Having arrived at a point when the country needed a hero, he managed to inspire both the men of the Royal Flying Corps and the nation as a whole. Albert was only 20 when he died, just three years out of school. His letters are those of a young man, the language and enthusiasms appropriate to his age. His family were always uppermost in his affections, and he missed them. Although an exceptionally brave pilot who would take on any odds, the aerial war badly affected his nerves. His touching requests for cake baked by his mother and sister show a need to maintain a tangible link with the comforts of home. Which brings me full circle to how Vanda, Gordon and I come to be here tonight. Having found out about Albert's cake during my research for the Defying Gravity exhibition, I decided to approach Barnet and Southgate College, one of our project partners, to see if their catering school would like to recreate the cake as part of our exhibition. We could then have it on sale in our cafe and restaurant. Albert preferred plum cake, so I asked the college to create a Nottinghamshire plum cake. The trouble is, they couldn't find one, and neither could I. But determined to go ahead with the project, I decided to try and track down one of Albert Hall's relatives see if they had the recipe. I didn't have any contact details, but I did have some names. So I did what we all do and turned to Google. 
To my astonishment, I found a newspaper announcement for the forthcoming funeral of Paddy Armstrong, Vanda's mother and Albert Paul's niece. I phoned the funeral directors in question and asked them if they'd be kind enough to pass on my details to Vanda. Some days later, Vanda phoned me and I told her about the project. She hadn't known about the cake and unfortunately didn't have a recipe. So, I admitted defeat and asked the students to go ahead and make a traditional plum cake. A few weeks later, however, I received a call from a Harriet Day, who turned out to be Vanda's daughter. She told me that following her grandmother's death, she'd been at her house sorting through her possessions and had come across a book of old recipes, including one for a useful cake. On reading through the recipe, she found it contained prunes and wondered if it might be the cake we were looking for. Of course, it was. Albert's great-great-niece had found the recipe for his adored plum cake. So the catering students duly proceeded to make a cake based on the original. Vander and I wondered what we were going to call it, and we both independently came up with the name Albert's Ripping Cake. <laughs> Earlier this year, we marked the centenary of Albert's death, and I was contacted by the BBC's The One Show, who wanted to run a feature on the Ripping Cake. Vander, Gordon and I came together again for the programme. Your talks organisers, you've heard Steve Clark, happened to see the broadcast and kindly invited me here tonight to speak to you. Of course, I couldn't possibly come without Vander and Gordon, who you'll be hearing from in a few moments. But before you do, would you like to sample a little bit of Rick and Kate? Yes. Yes? Okay. So. Should be here. Oh, somebody's going to get it. So, um, my first question is um, probably to Vanda. Um, were you in touch with any family members who actually knew Albert? Yes, I was in touch with Lewis, who was Albert's elder sister, and I knew her until I was 25. But, uh, she was always in our life, she used to come and visit us quite a lot. She'd turn up in her huge Rolls Royce. <laughs> but she was very short at the time I knew her, and uh, she wore this pink coat, very glamorous clothes for an older lady, and her hair has gone a bit thinner in those days, with the hair net on, and she arrived with the Rolls Royce and let the dogs out into the road, little yappy thing, and think, come on, come on, come on in, and all this sort of thing. Uh, she turned out unannounced and things like that. Well, we go and visit her at the park where she lived. She's a very independent lady who was very strong-willed and uh, independent and very keen on gardening and everything had to be perfect, not a weed in sight. Very determined and very kind though at the same time. I had people working for her in the older years when they got older, she's very good to them. In a way, good natured and and now perhaps she's very strong and independent. I remember turning out one day unannounced, what she did to us, so we thought I'd turn up unannounced to her one day. It was a Sunday morning, and there she was. Well, she, she must have been in the front door, was my dear woman, so I said, oh, she must be able to do the door with that. Nothing happened. It again, it It again. Then eventually she turned up furious in her little nighty thing with a 
older lady she was twirl slip, with sort of hair looking extraordinary. <laughs> she said, what do I know for you again? I'm not up properly yet. And I thought, oh dear, I got told off. She's quite stern. Told me on the other hand, they got on with her very well. So uh, yeah, she was good and she's quite artistic as well. She went to college in London to study art, but then came back from the war so it's quite nice to talk about artistic things with her. So she's got an artistic nature as well. And she'd ride horses and she rode horses until she was 75 and kept them herself. Um, yeah, very strong little person. Uh, what else can I think? How well, let me think. After we have my news. What's the No. So there was, we have Sir Albert there, which is Albert Hall's father. That's Harriet's his mother, who is a very quiet domesticated lady, very family oriented. And then we have Lewis in her younger days. <coughs> Albert, of course. And we have Cyril. It's Arthur Cyril, but he's called Cyril. And he was my grandfather, Albert's brother. And that's Mary Grimes. <coughs> and I knew Mary, who was uh, Cyril's wife. And uh, Mary and Lois didn't get on. And I remember there used to be a bit of sort of rude things said about each other. I knew Mary till I was 18. And uh, yeah, she was, she was very pretty and uh, delicate seeming. And I think Lois was more practical and gardening and doing things with her hands. But, but you know, there used to be little rude comments said about each other. But she was, she seemed very delicate and dainty, but actually she's a very strong person. Actually, lived by herself in a big house, as Lois did in older years. Yeah, quite strong and capable. Let me think. Let me see if there's anything else. Oh yes, uh, Mary and Cyril were a very happy couple. But uh, I think in the war and things, it, it affected their marriage really. So she was sometimes very lonely as well. So. Oh, she used to talk about Albert and having very white teeth and everything like that, and the adventures the brothers got up to as children, hear stories about them, and things like that. Anything yeah. else? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she said Albert was very moody. I remember she used to talk about those voices as moody. When he was, you know, used to come home on leave, when Albert came home on leave, Harry used to send to Mary up to the bedroom and say, get him to come down, because she dare do it. Because <laughs> he might have head off, but because she was pretty nice and very polite to find. I think that was one of the things we found from the diaries as well, that those are sort of stories that have been passed down, but they were all written back in the diaries as well, when he sort of, uh, him and Lois, uh, Albert and Lois, had a major blow up one night, which he put down to the state of his nerves. So. Well, yes, it was a case of as well as writing letters, as Gordon's just mentioned, Albert kept a diary where he confided his innermost thoughts. And I know that his diaries were missing for a while and subsequently turned up. Can you tell us how they came to reappear and what you learned from their contents? Certainly can. Yeah. Well, I'm going to stand up for this because if I don't look at the slides, I can't remember what to say. Um, these are the three diaries that there was. The, the first of them 
Secretary saying, I'm not going to go through my first few weeks in grants, but basically this is what I've done, and then he, we have daily entries after that. And then the last one is Renshaw's 1970 uh, we'll, we'll show some sort of entries from this. I should warn you, his writing was pretty awful, and his spelling was even worse. He was never good at those at school at all. Um, what happened with the diaries, even today, is something of a mystery. Um, we know factually the last time they were seen was by an author called Kiernan, um, because he had sight of the diaries when he wrote his book in about 1930-something, 33 I think it was. Then, really, your mother never spoke of the diaries, and nobody really knew anything of them, until Banda's mother got a letter one day saying, we have some stuff that we think is yours. Quite a long letter explaining how this lady came to have them. So all we do know is when Mary Ball, which was Cyril's uh, wife, died, the, um, the gentleman who shall remain nameless, whose wife is still alive, took them from the house for safekeeping, but not just the diaries, quite a lot of other paperwork as well with them. And then when he died, his wife was going through them, realised what they was. Now luckily she worked for a museum, and uh, after some while got in contact with your mother, and returned to them in 2005, wasn't it? <coughs> yeah. Now, Panda's mother didn't really do anything with them, but when she died, they ended up with us, basically, um, along with various other things, which he'd always had, like the uniform and his violin. Um, and some of these things were exhibited recently in Nottingham Castle, because it seems silly we've got all these things, but nobody had seen them, actually. But very few times they'd ever been out. Then uniform had been, that was about it, wasn't it? So, um, that's how the diaries came back, and we can just assume that they were boxed up at some point with, uh, or Cyril boxed them up, and they just got left in his office, or they were at the factory where he worked, we don't really know. Um, because Lois had a lot of his other artifacts, which ended up being given to the city of Nottingham, which is what Albert's father wanted done to quite a lot of the things he'd collected over the years. So Nottingham Castle has a big collection, and. Uh, and then we have some stuff as well at home, but the stuff we have has answered quite a few questions. So that's really how we came back having the diaries. And then you asked what's interesting about them. Well, this could take all night, but I will try it. I have picked some things, and you may think, why did you pick those? Because um, one of them, well, afterwards, I did think myself, why did I pick the bit about cars and motorcycles? Because I actually know very little about them at all coming to Brooklands, but there we, there we go. So, Life outside the RFC was probably one of the interesting bits for us, which is after he'd come back from France for the first time, and he was posted in the UK um, from, I think it was late October 16, until he went back on the 7th of April 17. So that whole period was quite interesting to read. Now, Andrew and I transcribed all these because there was no other copies of them, and that took us, uh, it took a period of about two and a half months, and some pages we did less than a page a day because by the time you've been on Google to find out who on earth this person was and that person, and also you will see there's some rubbings out in the diaries, and we don't know who did that. We suspect it was his father rubbed these bits out, because one or two we've been managed to decipher what the rubbings out were, and uh, he was a ladies' man, let's say. <laughs> and they, some of the entries might have been a little bit too much for some people in those days. <laughs> so anyway, but life outside the RAF. Financial info, so this was, his, this was his diaries. These are the neat ones at the beginning, they're extremely neat. This is during training, this one was, um, and uh, you can see that really quite a bit, but every single day there's the little reckoning, as you can see here, of how much cash he had, how much he spent, and what was left, or what he gained that day. And it tells you exactly what he spent his money on. 
except for when he took young ladies out where cash disappeared, but he didn't actually specify what went on on those occasions. So cars and motorcycles was the other thing, and uh, there were no diaries before he joined the Royal Flying Corps, so anything prior to that that anybody says about motorbikes, we have no idea, except we've got two pictures of this one, and this is, it's got the James written on it, and that's all we know about it, and at some point it gained a sidecar. Right. He did have a motorbike, we know, while he was still at Trent College. Um, and I think actually had it when he was at Nottingham High School before that. Yes. Yeah, I think he did. Because it's not widely known, a lot of people don't talk about this, but there was always something odd about his schooling. So he started off in a junior school in Lenton. Then he went to the King's School in, what is the King's School in Grantham. Then he went to Nottingham High School, and he think, well, how many more schools? But then he ended up at Trent College, and he wasn't at Nottingham High School very long. And although we'd heard bits and pieces over the years, we actually had it confirmed he was expelled from there. <laughs> so he wasn't a prized pupil, uh, you know, at the time. But wasn't he riding his motorbike in the school? He was either riding his motorbike in the school, which is one, or there's another one where he was his sweets that ended up all over the floor during a service in the chapel or something. But it's one of the things we've got on our to-do list is to go to Nottingham High School and actually see if they actually know what did happen there, but he definitely was invited to leave. And hence he ended up at Trent College, and we think he ended up there because uh, um, Cyril's, no, Harriet, who was Cyril Hall's wife, was a page, and they've got pages there at the same time, if you know what I mean. So I think her relatives were at Trent College, but it certainly suits him a lot better. So, I've just taken some extracts, and what surprised us is how quickly he sort of had cars or bikes and then sold them again um, when he was in the UK. So, the, uh, these are the references. Some I've typed out because it's very hard to read them, but on Saturday, November 20th, he says he went from Norwich to Skegness in Austin, and then uh, in December, Norwich to Skegness in Austin again. We think this was not a car he owned, but Sir Robert Ball had contacts with Austin, the car company. So we think he either borrowed or rented this Austin, but we have no reason to believe he owned it. On the 12th of June 1916, he got a Campion six-horsepower twin-cylinder, and uh, we had to make sure these were the right photos, and I can assure you of having spent a whole evening looking on Google, I found an exact picture of that, which was definitely made by Campion. Um, but by the 16th of June, we have an entry here in the diary that says, the cycle was poo-poo. So, sent it back. Right, end of that bike. And this seems to be a bit of a theme. Some of his vehicles didn't last that long. Um, and then the next entry we came across was in the Friday the 6th of Oct uh, October. This is after he'd come back from France for the first, after he'd been in France for the first time and he'd scored, I think, his first 34 victories. And then he came back to France for quite a while. In fact, was never due to go back out to France. And uh, the only entry we've got is got a car from Cripps. Now, Cripps were a garage in Nottingham. And this particular picture we think might be the car he got, which was an Oldsmobile at the time, but we don't know whether he purchased it or not. <coughs> Moving on, however, to the car he had the longest, which of course was this one, was the Morgan. And the first hint we got, and it's rather nice the way this is written, if I can. Ah, oh no. You don't have your finger up there. Bought new car home from Birmingham, paid £140 for it. Dad gave me £100 towards it. Topping sport, wasn't he? 
<laughs> I would say so. £100, as you can appreciate, was an awful lot of money in those days. And then the next day it says, Birmingham in morning, uh, was sent on to Orphan Ness to lecture, went in my new Morgan car. So we know that's the beginning of the morning. And uh, that is the longest lasting car he had. And it went all the way to January the 15th, 1917, two months where he sold Morgan part exchange for an EMF. Now, this really was a, not a good buy, this one it turned out to be. So, we've, uh, um, if we go down to the next entry, EMF crank box crashed, arranged to buy Rover cycle for £61. And then we went on to up here, he actually got rid of it on that day. Therefore, only brought in £22, 10 shillings from the Morgan. I guess that didn't include the £100 his father slipped in. So I think he was just happy he'd made a bit of money there. And of course, as you can see, he paid the bill, bill the same day as well. There's one other interesting entry here, actually, you might be interested in. This was pretty typical of what he was doing. On Saturday, which was sort of day off, he flew to Nottingham, stayed at Skegness, um, and then I can't remember what that word says. Can you remember? We did work out what all these squiggles were, but it's something about Lincoln on the way, crashed at Nottingham, and had a machine sent on to Birmingham. He had actually, there were quite a few crashes. There were once in his training, but during this period he had more than one or two crashes as well in aeroplanes and survived them. And interestingly, we'd always known of an article in the Nottingham Post of a guy who claimed to have half a propeller off his plane, which had crashed in Nottingham, but we'd never actually seen any real confirmation of that until we saw this diary entry and it's actually the dates correct and everything. So there is a guy in Nottingham has half a propeller off this plane, but we know what plane it is which he didn't say at this time, but I'm sure there's somewhere you can find it out. Sorry, that's just the check he sent to Evans for the rover there. So he's on his rover bike, and uh, sorry, I'm just going to go back one. So that's on uh, Friday, January the 19th, and uh, by March, he sold the rover for £15, and then we find down here that a few days later he bought a BSA 4's power cycle for £20. Okay? So he went through things quite quickly, though the, the thing he had the longest, and I think like most, was his uh, Morgan, but even that wasn't there forever. And I think he needed something bigger, because with the, the EMF we know actually it was a four-seater, so he went from a smallish two-seater to something rather larger. The other thing is, it, 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 he lived life at an incredible speed, I think, when he was even back in the UK. And this is just a random week we took. We've typed this out because it is very hard to read these up here. But uh, so, while he, after he'd come back from France the first time, there was a plane being developed by Austin called the Austin Ball. Um, there is a photo exists of it. So this is why he was a lot of, you'll understand that's why he got some of these entries up. So, in the morning here on Wednesday, he said, went to Birmingham by 8.10. That means train, by the way, when it says the time. We always work that's the 8.10 train. But came back to Nottingham because works had not started. And what he's talking about is this aeroplane. Uh, spent day and evening at home. So, not too bad, but he just sort of popped Birmingham back on the train. On the Thursday, the 28th of December, back to Birmingham. That's the next day, but in the morning this time. Flew Bristol for an hour at Castle Bromwich. Then went on to Austin Motor Company. Spent night at Mrs. Austin's. And then on Friday, cash in hand, £14, 10 shillings. Flight to Castle Bromwich on Bristol, 
afternoon at works on machine, and he always spelled machine wrongly. I guess it's because mechanic, machine, yeah, should be the same, shouldn't it? Really? But he always spelled machine with an E. Also, <coughs> went over the Morgan, which I guess was sort of, and he was always tinkering with things like this. Saturday, flying castle almost three hours, Bristol MBE2C, came to Nottingham Morgan, Empire and I with Clayton's. Then the next day, he obviously had Mrs. Badden's dance at 7.30 in the evening, and then went for a ride in the morning, during the morning with Willie Clayton, cash in hand, £13. And then Monday morning, off we went to our astral house, which is the, where the Royal Flying Corps was uh, uh, being run from. This is in London now, North, North London, isn't it, Claire? Yeah. Lovely. Right. Um, 11 a.m. he was down there, 4 at room 235, conference report to Major Post at 12 p.m., was transferred to 7th Wing at Norwich uh, in order to demonstrate he was now actually teaching people to fly at this point. Bristol was being sent on for me, caught 618 train to Nottingham, and then the following morning he sets off in the Morgan to Norwich. Doesn't get all the way there because he gets too tired, and then does the last bit of the day after, but he just seemed to be backwards and forwards from Nottingham to wherever, and, it, and his whole life seemed to go on like this. And we have there's one diary entry which we couldn't work out for such a long time. But basically he had dinner at home, then went down to London, had a night on the tiles, I guess is the word. Let's pack home breakfast. <laughs> Took us a long time to work out what that was all about. And there was a clue the week earlier where the arrangements had been made with a certain gentleman in London in London. So um, he certainly lived life at full speed. The other thing is we found out what he was going to do had he finished his flying, and you may not know, but when he went out to France. He was given one month, and of course he, it was exactly a month, and the day after he was due to be presented to um, Trenchard and Haig, the, sorry? No, no, the one who was the commander of the British forces, full stop. So General Haig, yeah, General Haig was supposed to, he was supposed to see them the next day, and, we, and he was, the, from all accounts, he was going to be told he was going back to the UK. So that's really what makes the last day even worse, I guess, in a lot of ways. So we were reading down, we got to this, and it says, Father came to see me, told him about Rene. Now that's Rene Austin, whose name's Irene Austin, because he had a little bit of a thing going on with her at one point. Also, we talked about White's aeroplane scheme. And we went, all right. And then a few days later, so that was Thursday, the 1st of March, on the 5th of March, signed agreement and received a thousand pounds for aeroplane works to be started when come home. Also received 50 pound check from Universal. That was the engineering company that his, that I don't, we don't really know his father bought it for him, but he was at running this uh, engineering company in Nottingham at the time. And then the last entry we had with the clue in was went shopping and to see land for my aerodrome. And we didn't know any more than that until we uh, started through some of the other paperwork that came back with the diaries. And I've just got some very, very brief extracts from it, just to give you an idea of what was going to happen there. Is uh, basically, it was the document, the agreement for the incorporation of a limited library into the company under the name of Hall Aviation Company. And the purpose of it was for making, manufacturing, and selling and dealing in aeroplanes, seaplanes, and aircraft of every description and purpose and some reason at all. And it was going to have a share capital of £200,000. You have to wait the next bit, because it shocked me. The said James White, who was putting all the money up for this, um, agrees that the 
company shall have the use of the capital up to £100,000. And uh, just to give you an idea, in today's money, that's six and a half million. That's what I've got. So we didn't know who this guy was, and we struggled for a long time, but it turns out we've got photos of him at their home wearing a bowler hat. And he was, had had a bit of a checkered history, but he was a financier, actually, who eventually went bankrupt and actually committed suicide in the, I think, 1920s, wasn't it? But we only actually discovered this all last week, because we'd had this person in photographs, we didn't know who they was, and we, we'd searched and searched for this name and came up with nothing, and then suddenly came up with it all, and it all made sense, the pictures agreed. And then that already made sense, and I think he'd had financial dealings with Sir Albert Ball before. And then finally, the first directors of the company will be the managing director, that was going to be Albert Ball, BC, Sir Thomas Beecham Barr, that is the conductor, Sir Thomas Beecham, I think this is his son, Henry Beecham, and the said James White, and the said Albert Hall was Albert Hall Senior. So that is what he was going to do, had he come back to the UK, he was going to form an aircraft manufacturing company. Because before that it was believed that he was going to sell, buy and sell cars, because at one point there's a, a reference I think, in one of his letters of him buying or arranging to buy 20 cars, but that actually never happened, and this was, it seems like this was going to be his future. Uh, life in the RFC, I think everybody knows how little training they got, but he actually logged every single day how many hours he spent flying. So I just thought I'd add him up and see how it came to. So at Norwich, for his training, he was there from October the 26th to December the 16th. So that's not quite two months, I think. So 37 days of training, I think in total it was, and he flew for 8 hours, 18 minutes, or 13 and a half minutes a day. All right? And what it consisted of is days when you did nothing, and then just 10 minutes of flying, to occasionally a day when you did a lot more. Then he went down to um, Uphaven, to the Central Flying School, and he was there, if you think about 20th of December to the 30th of January, take Christmas out, because they did have leave at Christmas, that's about a month he was down there. So I reckon he had about 26 days training there, nine hours flying, so it gets a little better now, 21. Then he moved to Gosport before he first went to France, and he was teaching people how to fly. <laughs> so, it's, it, it, you know, I think everybody knows they got very little training, but it just sort of, it was extraordinarily little training, I think. Uh, the other thing was his health, I guess, was the other bit, uh, which, and you know, you never think people like, sort of get ill, but they do. But the one thing we discovered was a bit poo-poo during the day, hay fever, etc. And I don't think any, anybody in your family knew he suffered from hay fever or ever mentioned it, but it appears like he did. And then we've got another entry here, um, which is, uh, was not at all well yesterday, uh, and I'm not okay today, went to bed at 8pm. Now that was very early for him, because quite frequently he signs his letter, it's now 11pm and I'm just finishing my letter, and he was a pro prolific letter writer, and you can see there it says each day who he's written to. So he was ill during all this lot here, where he went on a bombing escort, and uh, he changed his new port for a new one. He didn't put every single outing on, and then the next day, got up 7am, feeling very dark, rain all day, went to bed at 4pm, doctor came to see me, my temperature was 102, and I was oh, feeling rotten, that's it. Got to sleep at about 2, doctor wanted to send, us to, send me to hospital, but did not want to go. Next day, got up at 11, feeling much better, so just got out on patrol then. Instead, so, you know, and uh, so sort of a day, the, the next day after having a temperature of 102, he was back up in his aeroplane again. Um, the other thing about his health, I think, was also his state of mind. Claire's talked about this, 
and this isn't really to be taught, I, I, I'm going to say nothing here, but this was when he had just gone out, or was just about to go out to France, that was his diary on that April 17. This is the week before he died. And you can see from that what the writing's like. It really looks quite manic. And uh, I'll say one page later and the diary stops. The other thing is, and Claire mentioned this as well about his comrades, and uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of books say he was a learner and all this, but he actually cared deeply, I think, about his comrades. So he, this was when he was one of his leaves, he was back in Nottingham. Cigarette case for Lieutenant Villas and Hartley, my mechanic, because he spent a lot of time with tinkering with the planes with them. Sent parcels, etc., to chaps at number 11 squadron and a seven pound cheese for Lieutenant Chadwick, lucky jam. <laughs> Uh, another, this is just another one we found just before we came. Um, oh, try treated B flight men to a one pound football. So they have football matches and this sort of thing. Um, this one is, oh yeah, had dinner at night and visited and invited a few chaps from number 12, all got tight. <laughs> and then this I think is one of the nicest ones here is mess night. Every officer got blotto, simply a priceless night, so enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess it was things like that that sort of made him seem a bit more human than maybe you read in, in some, of the, some, some of the books. So I'll get to that now. Right. Younger than she would have done, and she sort of gave up doing things in public life and 
just myself, to her close family and friends, the sorts of the room, Albert's bedroom was kept the same for the rest of the time that they lived there. Touched, um, no, I think for Harriet it made it worse because Cyril was shot there as well. Yeah. And he was originally reported to them as killed as well. Yeah, but so in I fact he was a prisoner of war. So there. double shock there. Yeah. Didn't do her any so she didn't survive that many years. She was shattered by and she couldn't attend the service which went march through the, the procession through Nottingham. She just couldn't attend. But, uh, yeah, her, her gentle soul was devastated by it because her family was everything. Um, but everything <laughs> he did, it was such a shock to her. Uh, uh, who else is Lois? But as Claire said earlier, 
the royal flag or didn't, didn't want to recognise anybody. But it started first of all to appear in the French newspapers and then that leaked back to the UK papers and they started to write about it. But I guess at the end of the day what happened is, you know, it was some good news at a pretty desperate time because uh, this was during the Battle of the Somme um, when he had his first successes um, and uh, I think any good news was that they, they needed it. The other thing is, I think as Van der said really, that his father was um, pretty good at promoting him. You know, once he'd done all this, when he came back, he made sure, I think everybody knew, he liked public life, and, but uh, Albert, you know, young Albert did not. So when he returned from France, uh, his diary entry reads this, this is the perfect example of understatement. Met by people, as Claire said, that means the family, also photographers and reporters, which gave a lot of trouble. In fact, he absolutely tested it. And uh, that was sort of the story that was always within the family, it was an interview, yeah. that he absolutely hated this. And there's another entry where he goes to the theatre and they turn the spotlight on him and then you get a very similar understated thing about, I think it just says it was ghastly, you know, to have the spotlight turned on him. He really didn't like public adulation, but equally he was very proud of what he'd done. Um, as Van der already spoke about various memorials, the, these were the uh, Albert Memorial homes, they were built and they're for the, for the, or they're allocated to ex-service people, I think, to this day. Um, this is what they look like now. Um, sorry, on that previous one, you notice the weather vane is an aeroplane. Yeah, that's it being built. Yeah, this is uh, in under construction. And this is the Lenten War Memorial. So, well, he was born in Lenten, which is just about a couple of miles out of the city centre of Nottingham. And this is the shape of an aeroplane wings, this building, and this would be the tail plane. So if you look at it on Google Earth, and a bit of imagination, it all makes sense. So, uh, um, then there's a statue, that was actually paid for by public uh, donation. In fact, like everything, all public works, you know they run over when it comes to actually doing it. And the council actually had to dive in and uh, finish that off, or provide the money to finish it off. So this is where there's a little service held every year. On, on the 7th of May. Um, but the other thing which really sets him apart, and, and uh, Claire alluded to this, was the speed of his victories, particularly the second time he went out. Because they were going out with a new fighter, they were under strict orders not to cross the German lines with the SE-5A. In fact, they went out on the 7th of April. It was the 23rd of April before he scored his first victory. And to get over the issue, he had a new port there as well, and he took that up. And so his last 10 victories were done in about 10 days. And I think that's what sets him apart. He was not the highest scoring ace by any means of the First World War, but two things. He was absolutely fastidious about whether he shot a plane now, and the plane had to crash for him to claim it as a victory. So although it was the 44, uh, 43 planes of one balloon that he was, is, is uh, sort of credited for officially, Apparently, at the, when he, Sir Albert Gore was presented with the VC posthumously, he had the king actually said it was actually 46, but some people believe it was a higher 60. But he certainly forced so many to the ground, but if he didn't actually see it crash, he didn't count it. So he was, uh, we don't know. The other things that have sort of kept his memory going, this is the school of Alan, and it's, uh, yeah, it's college, it's Albert Gore, this isn't all of it, this is just the only bit that you can find his name on. But uh, this was opened in 1999, and uh, that the name of the school was decided by a vote of the pupils. 
Um, so, you know, it's surprising really how these things keep going. And then also, there's been books written about him over the years as well. The, the original book was this one by Walter Briscoe and Stannard. If you've got a first edition of that, hang on to that one, we'd love one, because they're uh, quite rare first editions of that. Then in 1921, Briscoe wrote The Boy Hero of the Air. Then 1933, Kiernan's book, 1933, this is very, very factual and it uses all the RFC records and everything, but it's an exceptionally complimentary book. Then you've got the Chaz Bauer book that came out in 1977, and the most recently one is by Colin Pengali in 2010. And then in 2014, they reprinted the original Briscoe and Stannard book under a different name, but it is exactly the same book. I guess stupidly went and bought it and then found it was exactly the same. But there we go. <laughs> so that's it. So I think it's all those things that sort of keep his memory alive. So. Well, thank you. Um, my final question tonight is one that I know has always intrigued people. Um, and that is, Albert is buried in a German cemetery. How is it that he's never been moved? Um, the, yes, yes, he was, uh, this was normal practice, if you, got, if you got shot down behind the lines, the other party would bury you. So he was buried in Alan Cemetery, and this is actually purported to be a picture of his burial, which we believe it is, though in Pengeli's book he says there's some evidence that this is not his burial, but to be honest, the position of it and where this line of trees are looks exactly correct to us, but uh, you never really know. So he was, he was buried uh, in Annalan in, in a German military cemetery. Now what happened after the war was that most of the English flyers were removed from the German ceremonies and reburied in a Commonwealth War Graves cemetery. Um, but Sir Albert or his father didn't want this to happen. So this was the original German cross that was in his grave there. That's a wreath by the way at the bottom. It's, they, they're just plain crosses. And they all look white there, but they're not actually white, as you'll see in a moment. So I don't know how or whether they're white. That is the cross, and that's now in Trent College at their chapel. It's up inside their chapel. And uh, then that got changed to this one here, which nobody really knows much about, other than it says Royal Flying Corps. Nobody, I, I assume it was the Royal Flying Corps put it there, but we don't really know. And that cross has never been seen, if you know what I mean. It doesn't exist any longer. And then finally, this was the, the, the moral. Now, there's two stories. His father wanted him left there for one or two reasons. One reason that's put forward is that he never bore any malice to the people who he fought against. So why shouldn't he stay there? The other one was that if he moves to a Commonwealth war grave, well, he'd get the same headstone as everybody else. They take the choice there about which the true answer is. But this is his grave. Uh, today, then, this was taken. Whoops, sorry. This was taken in May, and this is the uh, squadron, ATC squadron from Nottingham, which number is 138 Squadron, which is known as the Albert Ball Squadron. There's some these these lot at the front here are from the local school, and uh, that was actually on the 7th of May this year. Is there something you wanted to add? No, the College Albert Ball students, aren't Yeah, yeah, from the. From the school. So that's where it is today. And the, there's still German crosses all around, unfortunately. They're blocking them all out, but they're actually all black. Um, they're not white at all. I don't think they want, as parents, wanted the body fiddling around with it and being removed yeah. from things as well. I think you just leave it there and 
But it's the other truth is nobody really knows. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. That's it. Well, thank you both very much. So, um, what a treat. So now, um, if you have any burning questions you'd like to ask Gordon or Vanda, now is your chance. Okay, usual rules, don't ask the questions if you've got the microphone, so anyone, everyone can hear. I have to say that um, Albert's gone up in my estimation, <coughs> expelled from school, motorcycles, <laughs> <laughs> And young ladies, what more do you want? <laughs> Sorry, quick sort of summary property uh, fixation question. I believe Albert Senior bought the field in France where he was killed. Does that remain within the family? Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. Except it will not the whole field. It's a, a strip of it. The, the, the particular field in question is split into lots of strips and there's various owners and there's two strips according to the current documents. Yes, there's one strip where Hayden Stone is and there's another strip, strip somewhere else must have been part of the deal at the time. I think it's randomly bought at the time. So the truth, I, th I think what's the most, the best explanation is that there's a lot of books they bought the field but I think Alan Walls sent somebody over there because he didn't speak a word of French yes, and uh, he may not have ended up quite with what he thought he had but, <laughs> but to confuse matters further we have got a copy of an old land purchase receipt um, but that doesn't really bear much relation to what the current land records say but having said that that area was completely destroyed all the records were lost in the uh, second world in the second world war so but yes there are two strips and at the moment we are desperately trying to give it to the community not to Annaland but the next door only and they're going to then they want to pave it and make it so that it's a lot easier to get at the crash site rather than more or um, but there seems to be some issues with French law um, it's taking its time isn't we're, it? we're on year four and we've suggested some things but but yes, we do, and it's farmed by a farming company who farms the whole field. Don't worry, you know what most people would take to be a field. Brexit will probably put another two years on that. Another question, maybe. Anyone right over the far side, isn't it always? Thank you so much all of you for sharing all of that, um, very, very interesting. Um, I've read several biographies and um, summaries of um, Alan's life, and a lot of what you told me is um, very much new to me. Um, have you been approached by historians? Is there interest to publish some of the work you've done transcribing in diaries? Um, we expect to see more of this in the public sphere. Um, not yet. We have had uh, one gentleman in Nottingham approached us very early on um, yes. that, you know, to write a book about it. Um, but no, we haven't. At the moment, uh, the, I, I guess our original plan was, before this year came about, was that we would probably either donate them or make the contents available. Uh, unfortunately, one of the things that happens from time to time is people come out of woodwork claiming to be relatives who aren't. And we've had two particularly bad occasions of this, one which occurred this year, um, and we've been advised for the moment not to 
do anything with them in case these other parties make a claim against them. Uh, they are not; they are related, but very, very distant. <coughs> but they were claiming to be much closer related. And uh, but it does happen, unfortunately. Uh, and we have, but most of them, as soon as you ask them who they're, you know, what could you explain exactly what the relationship is, they suddenly evaporate. But it's made us think differently now. What to do? Yeah, yeah unfortunately. Okay, another question, maybe? Yes. Uh, referring to the diaries, I just wondered, looking at his writing, which sloped very much to the left, was he left-handed? You know, I thought that. Because <laughs> I'm left-handed, and to write, you know, that angle, you go yeah, down, you, 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 you don't know anything in, 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 in,